Um, we're in Genesis chapter 33 today, and uh, it, we've been teaching through the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the life of Abraham and then Isaac, and then for the last several weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jacob. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis 33 and get ready. We're going to jump in there. Um, but interestingly, by God's providence, today, Mother's Day, is a story in Genesis that has nothing to do with a mother, but is going to be heartwarming to every mother in the room. And God just provided it for us this way because, uh, you know, I, I suppose as a, as a mother, uh, it's nice when you get acknowledged, it's nice when somebody pats you on the back or buys you a flower or whatever, but what you want more than anything is what's best for your kids, right? And, and this is a story about the, the sons of a mother and what God did in their lives that was best for them. So we're gonna look at that today with sort of Mother's Day glasses on. And it's a, it's a surprising picture of God's grace in a place that you just wouldn't expect to see it, especially if you've been following this story at all. And, and if you haven't, let me get you caught up. Jacob stole his brother's blessing, right? He stole his brother's birthright. And in doing so, what he did was basically stole his brother's inheritance or most of it and uh, the privilege of being the one who is blessed in the line of Abraham's blessing, which God has passed down, Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. But Esau, theoretically, should have received the blessing because he's the firstborn. Now, don't get me wrong, they're born just moments apart. They're twins, Jacob and Esau. And if you recall back to when they were born, you'll remember the story that they were fighting in the womb, right? And even though they were fighting constantly in the womb, God said, uh, there's going, God prophesied, basically gave her, the, uh, Rebecca, a prophetic utterance and said, listen, here's the thing. The, the younger one is going to be served by the older one. And so Esau was the first one out of the womb and Jacob wasn't having it. And he grabbed him by the heel and he was pulling and they came out together. But Esau came out first. So Esau is the firstborn. Esau should get all the blessings. But through a whole bunch of stories that we talked about for weeks, and if you weren't here, listen to the sermons or go back and read Genesis. But um, through a series of situations, Jacob basically finagles his way in to being having all the rights of the firstborn. And now he has stolen the blessing from his brother. And the last time that we saw Esau, and by the way, Esau is, a, is an ungodly man. There's no, no point in scripture where uh, we're ever told Esau became a follower of God, that Esau loved God. He never did. He never showed any interest in God. And when you read the New Testament, you find out that, that uh, Esau and God never had a relationship. So it's not that this, uh, we get to see this picture today because Esau is such a good guy. Esau is not a good guy. In fact, the last time we saw Esau was Genesis 27, and the last thing he said was, I am going to kill Jacob if it's the last thing I do. And the last thing Jacob said to him was, you got to catch me first, fatty, right? Because that's how brothers talk, well, my, in my family, anyways... <laughs> That's basically what he said, and he hightailed it out of town, and he said, I am out of here, and he took off, right? Um, and so these guys have been estranged 
they never liked each other. They never got along. And they haven't seen each other for 20 years because Jacob took off because he knew Esau was going to kill him. And Esau was just big, strong, tough guy who loved weapons and fighting and all of this kind of stuff. And Jacob is more of a mama's boy who doesn't like any of that kind of stuff. And, and so he took off to avoid getting killed. So before we start chapter 33, let's remember where we left off. Jacob and his family have been for 20 years in a foreign land with Laban, and now they finally separated themselves from Laban because God said, go back to the promised land. The problem is the promised land has Esau in it, and he's trying to avoid Esau because that's a death sentence, and he doesn't want to deal with that, but he's learning to trust God little by little by little, and he even wrestled with God, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, and, and now Um, he's on his way and he gets word that his brother Esau is coming to cut him off at the pass with 400 men, which means you're in trouble. He's gonna make good on his promise. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jacob had people too. He had four wives and he had some little kids and he had some servants, mostly shepherds and maids, those type of people. They stood no chance against Esau and his army. If you're trying to picture, like, what are Esau's men like? We know what Esau's like. He's huge, he's covered in hair, and he's scary, right? He looks like Chewbacca. So that's Esau. So who are the guys that hang with Esau? This was the Hell's Angels. They were on their way. You could hear the revving of the engines. They're on their way to meet him, and he knows they're coming, right? And he's begun to panic, and so he begins to pray. And he takes some strategic steps. He calls out to God, first of all. That's a good thing. And then he comes up with some strategy about how to protect the people that he's with and all of that. He sends some gifts ahead. Remember, he gave them all kinds of animals and stuff as a gift, Um, all to sort of butter him up. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis chapter 33. So, you know, it's really hard to find Genesis in your Bible, so I gave you all that time. Genesis 33, first book of the Bible, verse one. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Can you feel the tension of this situation? He, he figures there's almost no chance of us surviving this. Um, he, he gave him some gifts, which is kind of a joke because Esau could have taken it if he wanted it, Right? And so he had sent these gifts on ahead. He was hoping that had buttered him up. And now he had sort of separated the groups out and he had his family with him. And and so what he did, you know, talk about favoritism. We've been seeing it in every generation of this family, right? He has uh, his favorite child who is Joseph. And Joseph is the only one so far that's been born to Rachel. And then there's Leah, the wife that he didn't really want but got stuck with and her children. And then there are the maids in front of them and their children. So, so the idea is even if he starts wiping out my family, at least Joseph will probably survive, be able to take off. He sets it up that way. 
And then he goes to meet him and he gets out in front of them. I'm sure there's a signal that says, if he does something to me, you guys take off. And he, as he's approaching his brother in the distance, he starts to bow down. He, he gets down all the way down on his face, bows down into the dirt. Then he gets up and he walks a little ways further. And then he bows down again all the way facing the dirt, gets up, walks a little ways further, facing the dirt. He does this seven times as a show of humility and, um, and submission to his brother. And then he finally gets to his brother. Guys, it is on. Watch what happens. Verse four. Then Esau ran to meet him, oh man, and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Is that what you would have expected? <laughs> that is not what anybody saw coming. It's certainly not what Jacob or Israel, as he's called now, saw coming. He, his brother runs to him, puts his arms out, and he's thinking, okay, he's going to strangle me. And he puts his arms around him and just grips him, just clings to him and begins to weep on his neck. And both of these men, these grown men, 100-year-old men, are standing out there with their arms around each other, crying like babies. Because for 20 years, these twins, twins, you guys, we know about the connection twins have, right? These guys have been separated They've hated each other their whole lives. For the last 20 years, they haven't even known if each other was alive. And now these twins finally are back together. And they throw their arms around each other and they just stand there and cry and cry and cry. Verse five. Now Jacob, no, I did that last time too. Verse five, uh, chapter 33. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servants. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? Remember he sent all these people ahead with all the animals? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Keep your stuff. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. This is so crazy. Israel knows that his only chance was to somehow buy his way into his brother's good favors, right? Somehow he would have to flatter Esau enough. Somehow he would have to give him enough valuable stuff, and maybe Esau would just take his stuff and leave him and his family alone. Maybe he would show him a little bit of mercy if he paid enough to make up for what he had done. But I guarantee you that Israel never expected this. He expected this meeting to go horribly. Have you ever had a meeting coming up that you expected to go horribly? <laughs> that you just dreaded? 
I, I'm trying to picture in my head what, what must Jacob's countenance have been like going into this thing. And the picture I get in my head for whatever reason is like a, a convict, you know, in an orange jumpsuit with shackles. And his arms are down here and his feet can only take little steps. And he's being led into the courtroom. Now, he knows they got him dead to rights. They have video surveillance footage of him committing the crime. There's 50 eyewitnesses. This is this third time he's done it. There's a three strikes you're out law, right? He, he's in deep trouble. And you could just picture him with his head down and his feet shuffling and his arms together, just walking in to the courtroom, not even able to lift up his head and look at the judge. His lip is just quivering, right? That was the situation Jacob was in. He had no ammo. He had nothing to fight with. He had no argument. He had no way to explain how what he did was really okay. No, he just had to own it. He just had to face it, and he couldn't get around it. He was completely incapable of fixing the situation. Oh, he had some resources, but Esau didn't accept his gifts, at least not at first, right? There's nothing he could do. And don't forget, Esau's an ungodly dude. He's not a spiritually minded person. But somehow in Genesis 33, this wicked guy, Esau, becomes for us the example of the grace of Jesus Christ. We see it in Esau of all people. It's like Israel says, I've done everything I could to get you to receive me. I've done everything I could to keep you from wiping me out. I've done everything I could to sort of buy my pardon, but he knows it's not enough to buy his pardon. So he must have been blown away when instead of putting his hands around his throat, his brother put his arms around his neck. What a picture of grace. Esau wasn't looking to get rich off this. Esau wasn't looking for gifts. He wasn't looking for platitudes. He wasn't trying to get uh, Jacob to say, well, I was wrong. He wasn't trying to get him to make restitution or pay anything back. He wanted the relationship back. He wanted his twin brother back. He wanted to be restored in the relationship. These guys are twins. And Esau had all the power in this moment. And he had every right to destroy Jacob and do whatever he wanted to. He could have just taken all of his stuff, wiped out his family. But instead, he embraced him. And you know why he embraced him? Because that's what grace does. Grace embraces the person. Grace clings to the person. Grace says, it's more about you than it is about what you've done. Grace says, I'm willing to love you anyway. Grace says, I know you can't afford it. I know you haven't earned it. I know you don't deserve it, but I am going to bless you anyway. And Esau becomes this picture of grace. Grace clings to a person. Grace does whatever it takes to restore a relationship that's been lost and broken and damaged. That's what grace does. And you know what? When a relationship is this broken, nothing but grace can restore it. And don't lose this picture. I know, I know it's Esau. I know he's, he's not a good guy. But he's the picture of Jesus in this story. Don't lose the fact that 
he who has every right and all the power in this situation to squash the guilty one instead reaches out and embraces him. He offers him grace. Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories back to back in Luke 15. You don't have to look it up. You can look it up later. Luke 15, three stories back to back because the people kept coming to him and saying, why are you always hanging out with bad people? Every time we see you, you're at a party with a bunch of drunkards or you're hanging out with tax collectors or you're over there with prostitutes. We see you all the time with people that society says, no way. Why are you always with these people? And Jesus answers by telling three stories back to back. In the first story, he talks about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And he, he, it's the story of the lost sheep. And he says that what good shepherd is there who if he has a hundred sheep and one lamb just goes astray and is lost, would not leave the 99, remember we sang about this today, would not leave the 99 behind and go get the one. Do you realize that when a shepherd in those days would have a wayward lamb, and a lot of times the lambs just, they had a mind of their own, they would go do their own thing, they would wander off. Sheep are stupid animals, okay? Probably the dumbest animals on earth. And that's why they need shepherds. And by the way, the Bible calls us, yeah. So um, the lambs wander off because they're eating grass and they just keep eating and eating and moving. And pretty soon they look up and go, oh, where's the flock? They do, it happens all the time. So sometimes when a shepherd has a sheep, a lamb that is like that, that just continues to be wayward, he'll actually break one of the lamb's legs and then he will carry that lamb with him for a matter of a week or so while the leg begins to heal so that he and the lamb can form a relationship and the lamb becomes dependent upon him. And that picture that you've seen so many times of Jesus with the lamb around his shoulders is based on that idea. 99 sheep get left behind. He goes after the one because you might say, well, that's just dumb. That's just inefficient. I mean, if you got to lose one, Jesus goes, I don't want to lose one. I can't bear to lose one. I love you too much to lose you, says God. So he tells that story. And then he follows it up with another story. He goes, if, that, if, that, if you don't get that, let me tell you about this lady she, she was a widow, you know, and as a widow, she would have been given a dowry as a, as a young bride, and, and that dowry becomes really valuable to that widow because the coins of that dowry usually got made into a necklace that she would have so that if her husband died or, or left her or she was left destitute in some way, she would always have that bride price and she could use those coins to survive on. And he tells about this woman who loses a coin from her dowry and she freaks out and she sweeps the whole house and she looks under everything and she's trying everything she can to find it. This is like your car keys or your cell phone or all these things that we can't find and we freak out and it ruins our day, right? And, and she is freaking out and she's tearing the house apart and finally she pulls up a couch cushion or something and there it is and she finds the coin and she so rejoices over having found this coin that has such sentimental value, represents her husband, that she spends way more than the coin is worth throwing a party to celebrate with her friends that she found her coin. <laughs> Third story he tells, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. 
or maybe you've heard of it as the prodigal son. Young man comes of age, goes to his wealthy father, says, listen, I'm sick of living with you. I'm sick of waiting for you to die so I can get my inheritance. Give me my inheritance now. I'm out of here. And the father with a broken heart gives him his inheritance and the boy leaves. Boy, the young man leaves. And he heads off and basically spends it all in strip clubs and casinos and nightclubs. And, and lives that life in this faraway land until all of his money is gone. And when all of his money is gone, he finds that all of his friends are also gone, right? And he has to go and get a job, and uh, he finds a pig farmer who's willing to hire him to feed pigs. And he finds himself, this is the son of a very rich man. Just a month ago, he was the richest guy in town himself. And now he's out there feeding pigs, and he looks down at the slop that he's feeding to the pigs, and he says to himself, these pigs are eating better than me. I wish I could have what they have. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go back to my father's house and I know that I'm no longer his son. I've already broken all that off, but maybe he'll hire me as a hired hand. I could sleep in the barn. He'll pay me minimum wage. He treats his hired hands better than I'm being treated here. And he goes back and he humbles himself and he has to go back to his father. And as he begins to get back to his father, just like what Jacob experienced with Esau, what we see is his father on a hillside looking for him. And when he comes, his father runs to him and throws his arms around him and says, my son who was dead is now alive. And what does he do? Does he punish him? Does he mistreat him? No, he puts a robe on him, he puts a ring on his finger, and he has the fatted calf killed, and he throws a party for the whole community, and he says, my son who is dead is now alive. And they rejoice until the cows come home because this young man came home. Jesus tells those three stories back to back to back. You think he's trying to make a point? God says, I love you so much that if you break the relationship between us, if you blow it, if you go your own way, if you disrespect me, dishonor me, spit in my face and kick dirt on me, I'm still gonna love you. And I'm gonna love you so much that I will go to incredible lengths in order to get you back. And I will find you and I will reach out to you because you know what? You're not even looking for me. You don't even have the resources to come find me. I will find you. And when I find you, I will meet your need and I will bring you to me. And all you have to do is be willing to cooperate. Let me give you grace. It's the same story we're seeing with Jacob and Esau. God offers us grace and he doesn't worry about the fact that we could never pay the bill that we owe him. And he doesn't worry about the fact that he would be completely within his rights to crush us because it says in scripture he doesn't desire that any should perish but that everyone should come to a knowledge of salvation and the faith in Christ. How does grace respond when we humble ourselves and return to our Father for forgiveness? Grace doesn't demand penance. Grace doesn't demand repayment. Grace puts a ring on your finger and a robe on your back and kills the fatted calf. That's what grace does. That's what Esau did for Jacob. And that's what God does for us. But I want you to notice something. There's this nuance in this story that I can't get past. Um, see, God insists 
that we receive his grace before he's willing to receive our gifts. See, we want to get it backwards. We want to say, okay, God, I'm willing to, you know, go to church every Sunday, no matter how boring that preacher is. I am willing to, you know, um, quit drinking, quit smoking, and anything else that's fun. I'm willing to, you know, God, if you'll just, just give me a break on this one. God goes, you, there's not enough animals for you to sacrifice. There's not enough religious hoops for you to jump through. There's, n- there's not enough checks for you to write. There, there's not, you don't have the resources, God says, but don't worry, I have the resources. And by his grace, he reaches out to us. Remember, Jacob sent him all these gifts up front, but he did not receive them. He goes, what's with these gifts, right? Look at this again, verse eight. This is fascinating. Verse eight, he says, and he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, uh, for you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. So there's this process here. Jacob's trying to give him gifts at the beginning just as a way to butter him up. He's trying to pay him back. He's trying to make it right, so to speak, in whatever way that he can. But Jacob's not, I mean, Esau is not having it. Why? Because in the ancient Near East, and I suppose it's the same today, it's not a good idea to receive gifts from your enemy. It's usually a trick. It's usually a ploy. It's usually meant to hurt you in some way. And so you would never receive a gift from your enemy if your enemy wanted to give you a gift. First, he needs to come and bow down before you and surrender. And in that surrender, then you would accept his gift. Esau is not about to accept Jacob's gift until he's embraced him, until he has assured him that he holds nothing against him, until he reminds him that they are brothers. He's going to give him grace. And when he receives the grace and their relationship is restored, then he will receive his offering, but not before. Too many of us Christians, we we try to bring an offering thinking, well, this will buy God off. Whatever your offering is, it's never gonna buy God off. Thank God that's not what you have to do because grace embraces the broken person. Verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. And he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and the flocks and the herds which are nursing uh, are a care to me. And if they're driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord go on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Ser. He's basically said, look, why don't we go together? And he goes, I don't want to hold you up. I have all of this I got to take care of, and so it will take us forever to get there. You go on ahead. Verse 15, Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Then maybe I can give you some help. 
But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth, which means booths or uh, pins or stalls. He, he basically bought a ranch and he's set up there. He is now in the promised land. Israel is in the promised land for the first time. And look what he does. Now Jacob came safely, verse 18, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Then he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the land of the sons of Hamor, uh, from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Does it surprise you that when he finally sets up house for himself, that the first thing he does is build an altar? We haven't seen him act like that at all yet. He builds an altar first, just like Abraham used to build an altar first, just like Isaac built altars first. And now Jacob, or Israel, is now in the promised land, and what does he do? He builds an altar, and don't let it surprise you, because this is no longer Jacob the deceiver. This is Israel, the one who strives with God. And his story has changed because now, by grace, he's had that relationship restored with God. And now, by grace, he's had that relationship restored with his brother. Oh, he's still young in his faith. He still has a lot of growing to do. He's still going to stumble and do dumb stuff just like all of us do. But he's seen God do what only God can do. And that changes a man. He has received, by his own account, grace upon grace. And he'll never be the same. So God's promise is being kept. Israel is in the promised land. And God is not finished with him yet. There's going to be more on that in the next few chapters. But on this Mother's Day, let me just remind you of something. That our God is a God of reconciliation. There's probably moms in this room who have children who are just as estranged as Jacob and Esau were. Our God is a God of reconciliation. First, he wants to reconcile with you. First, he's gonna go find you. You're the lamb that's stupid enough to wander off from him. He will go find you. And as he goes and finds you, he comes and all he can do then is offer you grace. And by the way, don't be surprised if you fight that he'll break your leg. Because you have to learn how much you need him. But he'll go after you. And he will reconcile himself to you. Because you matter to him more than anything. The other thing I want you to know though. Is that same kind of reconciliation that comes by grace between God and us. Is the same kind of reconciliation that needs to happen in some of our lives with our fellow people. Some of us in our own families have, have walls built up um, and we, you know, we have ex excuses, you know, we can justify it. After all, she did this to me and he never did. 
I know. But the same grace that reconciles us to God can reconcile you in your broken relationships. What kind of reconciliation does God have in mind for your life right now? Whatever it is, it won't happen without grace. And for what it's worth, since you're the one sitting here listening to this message, the onus is on you. You be the one to extend the grace. And watch what God does. Because the words of the old song are just as true today as they were when John Newton penned them. God's grace is amazing. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What an awesome God we serve. Let's stand together and pray. God, on this special day where we take time set aside to just think of our mothers and serve our mothers and thank them and bless them, we stop at this moment to turn to our Heavenly Father, to kneel at your feet, to thank you, to praise you. We come with nothing in hand. What do you need that we have? We're dependent upon your grace. Father, for those who may be hearing this message today who, who have never known the grace of God, I pray that that would change today. I pray that you would break through the ice and bring an openness to the heart that maybe there would be a willingness to ask more questions. Maybe there would be a willingness to investigate more. Maybe there would be a willingness to consider what your grace would do in their lives. I pray, Father, for surrender like Pastor Ricky talked about. I pray that we would, we would metaphorically raise our hands to you and stop fighting and let you embrace us. And then I pray, Father, for those of us who have been embraced by you, that you would help us because there's somebody that we need to embrace. There, there's some broken relationship in most of our lives that you want to heal. I know you do. It's going to take humility on our part. It's going to take grace on our part. So, Father, take that same grace that you've poured out on us. How, how can we been, have been forgiven so much be unwilling to forgive so little of someone else. Give us that mindset and let us embrace others with your amazing, amazing grace. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.